Good morning, everyone. I'm really excited. First Sunday of the year, and I really feel like God's going to do something great this morning. And um, we've got this wonderful communion display. Big thank you to my wife who has put it together. Right in the oh, that's that's fine. I'll stand behind it and look really nice and pretty. So we're going to have communion together, and I really wanted to take the time this morning to actually just have a bit of time to talk about communion. Quite often when we have communion, it's like a a two-minute message. We kind of dive in, and we have that communion, and off we go. And uh, we do try to make it as special as possible during our gatherings, but for the start of the year, I really felt like this is going to be something special. So if you can turn uh, with your Bibles... uh, Turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. We're going to read a pretty big chunk of Scripture, and this is what it says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says to the church, I don't commend you for this particular aspect, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. If you have a mentor, uh, a person who you absolutely honor, and they say, when you guys get together, it's worse you might as well not even get together. It's kind of pretty bad, right? If, if let's say, I have one of my uh, previous senior pastors, he comes in here and he says, Nate, what are you guys doing? It's worse. You are like, like people are leaving all like gross and like discouraged and like who cares about Jesus? That's kind of like what Paul is saying to the church there. I set you guys up to be a life-giving place, but now you are getting together and it's worse, not better. This is crazy stuff. And he goes on and says, for in the first place, and this is, um, so he's saying, this is the biggest example. This is the clearest example of why when you get together is worse than it is better. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink this bread, sorry, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. 
But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give directions when I come. Let's just pray. Dear Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak to us. You bring conviction to us. You help us to know your ways and help us to live the life that you've called us to. We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, a few years ago, I read a book, a biography about one of the greatest leaders of the U.S., and he was President Abraham Lincoln. And one of the things that sets Abraham Lincoln apart from every other leader, and we've got some Americans in this room, I could get my facts wrong, but one of the things about Abraham Lincoln is that set him apart from other leaders is that he chose his cabinet out of people that were his rivals. He chose people that were supposedly his opponents. It is the same as our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, choosing his cabinet and saying, you know what, for the Vice, uh, prime, vice prime Minister, Deputy, that's a better word, a Deputy Prime Minister, I'm going to choose uh, Tony Abbott. And then on this other part, I'm going to get some other person from another party. And his whole cabinet is filled with people that prior to the election probably wanted to, you know, really try to push him aside. But he gets a group of people of diverse backgrounds, diverse opinions, diverse perspectives, and he forges them into a team. And it's out of this team that he is able to lead a divided nation who is going through civil war into unity by getting people that were sitting from across from him in a different room, really, even in some places, he's saying, let's get together, let's work things out together. And there was unity that brought together, uh, uh, but it wasn't a unity forged out of similarity, it was a unity that was forged out of a, a desire to have a strong nation. And I think Jesus did exactly the same thing when he chose his 12 disciples. He chose people that were not the same, but extremely different. In fact, we, we've mentioned this before at many times. He chose people that were probably rivals, um, and maybe even enemies, and people that probably hated each other. you got one person uh, who is collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, and he's probably seen as a traitor to the Jewish people. And then on the other hand, you have a guy named Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was possibly trained for armed conflict against the Romans. One person serves the Romans, one person's trying to kill the Romans. Put them in the same room, what are you going to get? And then on the other hand, you have a whole bunch of fishermen who are just normal tradies who are probably just trying to get through each day. At the same time, one of the interesting facts is that not all the fishermen were created equal. Some of them were from rich families because they had a whole fleet of boats, and some were probably struggling just trying to get through each day. And so you have these people that come from diverse backgrounds, diverse opinions, diverse perspectives, and Jesus says, you guys are my A-team. And you're going to do something about this. I do wonder if that is something that is a little bit lost in today's world. Because it feels like in this current cultural climate, if you do not 100% agree with me, I 100% do not like you and do not want to be associated with you. It only takes a little point of difference to create divisions and to create disunity in many different areas and aspects of our world. And it feels like every single day the news gives us a new thing to be divided about. 
And so when we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with these divisions and, uh, um, that, that seem to have occurred. And, and to be honest, it is a journey that I probably am still on in learning about what unity actually looks like. You know, when I was um, first employed in my previous church, in fact, I wasn't employed yet. I volunteered. I wanted to become a pastor one day, and so I just volunteered. It was a church plan. It had been going for about six months, and um, I volunteered. I started going in, and I started to work with who was the youth pastor back then, who is now a really close friend. And um, at first, I was a little bit skeptical and worried about what things were going to be like because I was only about 20, 21 at that point. But at 18 years old, before I had done national service, I went to Bible college with this guy. And this guy was like fresh off baptism, fresh off he was a fob. He was fresh off baptism. He was like, he, he was baptized out of a gang life, drug addiction life. In fact, he shared with me, I've never seen this, but when he was first saved, he would sit in church and because the drugs had so affected him, he would sit there, he would be slumped and he would literally be drooling because he had no control of his own muscles in his face. This guy was saved and a few months later went to Bible college and that's when I met him and I hated him with a vengeance. This guy was rude, he was obnoxious, his favorite pastime was finding people's buttons and pushing them till they broke. He loved to break people, that was what his pastime was and he had a posse of other guys that all loved the same pastime and that's why they got together and Bible college was hell every time I was with him because he was always trying to push my buttons. One day I snapped. We were at a conference together. He had lost his license because of his previous life, and he did not have a car. He did not have plate. He did not know how to get around. And back then, you could squeeze as many people in the cars as possible, and that's how we all saved up and got through college together. And so he would just jump in my car whenever he wanted to. Until one day, I screamed at his face. I said, "No, you are rude, and I do not want you in my car." I was 18, he was at that point probably about 24. He had done mixed martial arts for about 10 years. He was probably about twice my size and everyone was like, oh. And I was like, I just like slammed the door, let's go. And so me and my mates, we just drove off and I left him and he apologized to me after. It was big of him, made me feel like a hero that day. And I went, you know what? I could never see this guy in a ministry. This guy is punk. Who's he think he is? Coming to Bible college, pushing everyone's buttons, and like. I, I started working with him, and I knew that, you know, years can change people. And I was like, okay, let's see what it's like. So the first day we worked together, I said, hey, Nate, let's go for lunch. We went for lunch, and he put up a newspaper, and he didn't talk to me for the next 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, man. God, why do you put people in my life? That's such a pain. Why do you put people in your kingdom like, like, when you, like when they get baptized, at least maybe like wash away their imperfections, right? Like what you've done with me. I've done pretty well. Rudeness, obnoxicity, toxicity, whatever it is, get rid of it. Like just your power of the Holy Spirit should be enough to help people not be idiots and drongos and, and lamos. Like, the kingdom would be so much more unified if we didn't have extreme personalities. But we would also not have the variety 
Neither would we have the insight. Neither would we have the ability to understand. Neither would we be trained in patience and understanding and empathy if everyone looked exactly like us. And when Paul was dealing with divisions in the church, he was not mincing his words. He says, for in the first place, verse 18, and this is on the screen, you can see that. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, some, uh, um, I, was, I was looking through this, and I was like, that seems like a really weird comment. Paul was being sarcastic. For those who don't have a sarcasm button, this was Paul being sarcastic. He wouldn't say, oh yes, when you get together as a church, make sure there is the elite Christians, and then there's the new Christians, and then there's the lame Christians. Make sure that there are divisions so that those who are genuine can really look great. No, he was saying, since when has the church been about finding the elite and dividing them from those who are still finding their way. Since when has it been about those who have been trained in the law and those who are just, you know, bumbling around and like, why do we even read the Bible? And no, he said, there shouldn't be divisions among you. He was being sarcastic. And so he goes on and says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating, everyone goes ahead with their own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. See, the churches back then, um, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have a church building what will often happen is that they would uh, maybe go to the synagogue, as was their practice, and then they would then meet in people's homes, and they would have a meal together on a weekly basis, and they would actually, kind of sounds lame now, but they used to call them love feasts, because it was meant to be about the people coming together and sharing in the Lord's Supper, which wasn't just a little bit of bread or a little bit of a cracker and some juice. It was actually a full meal that they would put on to have together. Now, as you can imagine if the church was reasonably large, which apparently the church in Corinth would likely have been, you would need a pretty rich person to host these meals. It wasn't just like, let's meet in my one-bedroom apartment and you squeeze in a hundred people who have just found a Lord. You would probably need a decent-sized house and uh, uh, the host of this meal would often be the one putting on a lot of the food. However, what was seemingly going on is that some of these hosts would put a rich person's meal out and a poor person's meal out. They would have different rooms. And so this is for me and my mates who, you know, we are used to this kind of lifestyle. If we don't have crayfish and oysters and, you know, if you're Asian chili crab or I don't know what else, you know, the best food, we're going to go hungry. And that's for the commoner. That's for the normal person. They're used to like having the scraps, you know. They're used to having the gruel. They would come and say, can I have more, sir? And that was normal for them. That was their normal life. So we cater for the different classes that are already in society. 
that's what they were doing. And so Paul notices, he, he finds out that when people come together, they say that they're having the Lord's Supper, and yet they find that when they arrive there, they are funneled into different rooms based on their social status. And they were saying this is normal. And so Paul goes, that's not normal. Why is it that you are highlighting the differences between people? You see, the problem with how many of us see unity or experience and live out unity is that we find people that we get along with. We get along with people that look like us, that smell like us, that do things like us, that have the same kind of things that we generally get around, and we do life with those kinds of people. Unity is not tested when you are with people who you get along with. Unity is tested when you actually have to spend time with someone who doesn't look and smell anything like you, who doesn't think like you, who comes from a completely different perspective. And so Paul's telling the church in Corinth, you don't have, you don't have unity and you're not doing the Lord's Supper. And then he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper. Let's see this. In verse 23 to 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And this was a very important practice. Now, the Lord's Supper uh, or the communion or the Eucharist, as you might have heard about it in different ways, it, we practice it as a, a pinch of bread or a cracker in a little tiny cup of juice. And we kind of stand alone in our auditorium and we go this is between me and Jesus Jesus saved me wonderful which is partly true but back then they would have had a feast and during the feast they would have acted out the breaking of the bread and then the drinking of the cup at different points in this whole meal which would likely have taken maybe one and a half to two hours maybe even three maybe even four that's just what they used to do and Paul was saying, you, this is the practice that I received, and now I'm passing it to you. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave it out, and then in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup of my new covenant in the blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says something really interesting. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim... The Lord's death until he comes. There's a bit of a strange statement, right? You proclaim, when we are taking communion, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes. Now, I've never really, really thought about it this way. I'm like, I'm not like, Jesus, you dead. That's kind of weird, right? <laughs> None of us are really thinking like, this is Jesus, this is dead. <laughs> I mean, like, there are some traditions that believe that the bread actually becomes Jesus' body, and it's weird to think about that. But what is Paul actually trying to say? That when we have uh, communion, we are actually proclaiming, not acting out necessarily, but proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes. Well, this is really important because this is actually the foundation of our faith. We believe that Jesus came from heaven as God's only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sin so that whatever the penalty of sin is, which is death, would be taken upon Him so that we can have everlasting life. 
Jesus' death brings life to us. And so when we are having communion and we're proclaiming Jesus' death, what we're saying is that Jesus has died for me. I no longer am uh, counted as a sinner. I no longer have this wrath over my head because it has been taken upon by Jesus. I do not have to worry about the penalty of sin any longer. I do not have to worry about any of those issues because Jesus is the redeeming sacrifice. And then it goes on to say we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. What does it mean he comes again? Well, when Jesus comes again, the previous time was to bring salvation salvation. The second time that he comes is, is, is to fully bring the kingdom of God to us. That means that we are sinners no longer and we have got entry into the kingdom. So when we are having communion and we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes, we are remembering and we are declaring that I belong to another kingdom that is about to be inaugurated and I've got full access to it. I'm a citizen of this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Death and, and, and illness and suffering and pain no longer have to be my lot in life because I am part of a kingdom where God is going to wipe away every tear and he's going to get rid of every illness. We are going to live in the perfection according to how God had planned right from the very start and he's about to bring it to us. And so Paul says that's what communion is about. When we have communion, it's not for us just to have a little mid-gathering snack. It's about the fact that we are remembering. And the early church, we used to do this, and it was a feast. And it's meant to be a feast because we're meant to remember that when we have the Lord's Supper, we are feasting because we are part of the kingdom. We are feasting because we are understanding that the riches of glory is already beginning to be available to us today. The feast is meant to be a celebration that we have weekly. We're not meant to come to church and be all down and out. I mean, sometimes things happen to us, but when we are together, we are supposed to be remembering the victory of God. We're meant to be remembering the coming of the kingdom and every single Sunday is a feast day. Beck and I, we got this book about the seasons of life based on the Jewish uh, uh, calendar. And, and one of the lines I was reading this week in preparation uh, for Lent, which is only co which coming up in like literally a month's time. And Lent is the season leading up to uh, uh, Easter. And it's a time of remembering and, and repentance and coming to God. But this author writes, uh, but we don't fast on Sundays because every Sunday is a Sabbath and is a feast. It's a day of rest and it's a day of celebration because even in the midst of remembering that we are sinners and in the midst of remembering that the pain and the suffering that Jesus went through, we can still feast because God is victorious at the end. But notice that Paul said that even though they were literally having this feast, Paul was like, you guys ain't having the Lord's Supper. You've got a problem. And then he goes on and he says to them in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. I'm going to come to that in a moment. Paul was basically pointing out that because of the divisions in the church, they weren't celebrating or remembering what God had done and is doing. Because of the divisions between people. 
And so when he says in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, I've been in church a long time, and there was this thinking for a long time that eating and drinking of uh, communion in an unworthy manner was related to you being unrepentant and sinful because you are therefore then going like, I'm not really living according to, to God's ways and all that kind of stuff. And in fact, there are many people that don't feel right partaking in this because you're worried that you're going to be judged for being unworthy to God in some way, shape or form. But when I read this passage, it's not talking about your personal sin, it's talking about how you treat other people. It's talking about the fact that there are people in the same room as you that you don't value. It's talking about the fact that there are other people in this room that you treat in some way, shape or form as less than compared to yourself. Or maybe different to me and therefore separate to me. When we do that, that is taking communion in an unworthy manner. Let's continue to read this because this is um, pretty serious stuff. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body Sorry, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Hold up. Serious stuff. Paul's saying that when we are not discerning the body, when we partake of it, we are actually heaping judgment on ourselves. And that judgment has led to people, some people being weak, ill, or even dead because of this the way that they have taken this feast think about this Paul's not saying play around with this Paul's actually being really serious about this but why is why is it that if I don't like you and I take up this meal while we're in the same room God makes me sick or even kills me Think about that carefully, all right? Because this is a pretty serious thing that Paul's talking about. I don't know if Paul's necessarily saying that if I eat this and I don't like someone else in a room, that I'm going to die. But I think he's saying that every single week is an opportunity as I'm having this meal to discern the body. What does it mean by discern the body? Does it just mean that I'm supposed to see this bread and go, that's Jesus's body that was broken for me. I think what Paul is saying is that, I thought that we were going to be having slices, so this is going to be a bit messy, but I think what Paul was actually saying was that as we take, imagine there's a massive slice, that as we are having this supper together and, 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 and it comes time to actually remember Jesus, you are taking Jesus' body and you are breaking it and then you are handing it to the next person and the next person takes a bit, and then another person takes a bit. And you visually see the body of Christ scattered across the room. You're visually remembering 
that I'm part of the body of Christ, that I'm not just Nate anymore. I am part of the larger body. And this is an analogy, and this is the language that Paul uses a lot. This is not foreign to the, the church in Corinth. The body of Christ is the church of Christ. The body of Christ has Jesus as the head of the body, but we are all part of the body. And when we are discerning the body, I'm literally meant to be looking at the people around in a room. I'm literally meant to be thinking, am I united to these people or am I living separately to them? As I'm taking this in, I'm not saying, you know what you're saying? You're saying if you are separate to everyone else, I'm a cancer in the body of Christ. I'm a person, I'm a cell, if you will, in the body of Christ that is corrupt and doesn't want to play according to how the rest of the body works. And I'm going to do the things that I want to do that fits me and works for me. What does that sound like? It sounds like cancer. So why is it that people get sick, sick and, and weak and die? It's because you're cancer, man. It's because you are saying that I'm living outside of the blessing of God. I'm living apart and, and, and isolated from the rest of the people. I want to have my salvation, but I don't care about yours. I want to have my way, but you're not allowed to have yours. And so Paul says, when we come together to have this meal, we are meant to be discerning the body and so... We allow there to be a judgment of our thoughts, a judgment of our behaviors in this moment and repent of it so that I escape from the future punishment. This is, I was reading this and I'm like, man, this is, this is harsh, this is heavy, this is crazy. And I was reading this theologian and he was saying it is actually a grace that Christians get to judge themselves now rather than wait for the day of judgment. It is a blessing that we get to evaluate our thoughts, our behaviors, and the things that we do now, rather than wait for God to weigh our thoughts, weigh our behaviors on the day of judgment when there actually is an eternal consequence. And this theologian was saying it is a grace that we have that we get to judge ourselves truly, as Paul says in verse 31, so that we won't be judged later. In verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers, when you eat, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He says, even before you get to this meal, think about how you're going with other people. Think about the people in your community who is neat amongst you, that you can serve that you can prepare for. Now, I want you to note something. Paul does not say that the rich people should be poor or the poor people should be rich. He doesn't even say that there should be this socialistic equalization between the rich and the poor. He's saying if you're rich and you have means, you've worked for it, you've got that, you go home, you have your meal, and then you come together and you behave like everyone else. Note this. There are times for you to be different and to keep your difference. The body of Christ is not meant to look uniform, we have our points of difference. I think differently to you. I think differently to Beck. I have to think differently to Beck because it's, because it's because of our difference that we have strength. 
It's because of our difference. But the strength doesn't come simply because we're different. It's because we are different yet united. We're different yet united. And there are times for us to emphasize the unity and then there are times for us to emphasize the difference. For example, some of you are not great at music and that's a point of difference. That's fine for you to be different and not try to jump on stage and say, we're all part of the body of Christ, let me sing. It's like, shut your mouth and go somewhere else because that point of difference is legitimate. But then there are times where you go, God loves me more. It's like, shut up. That is a point of difference that is not true. When we value ourselves more than other people, when we put ourselves on a pedestal in some way, shape or form, now it's easy for us in that, and in that passage to go, well, we don't do that. We don't do the rich people home and the poor people room. We don't do that kind of stuff. But what other points of difference do we sometimes emphasize in this place? What do we allow there to be divisions of? Can I put forward to you some observations I've made over time? I think sometimes age is a thing that we put in between people. Sometimes we go, well, well, I've got my culture and my way of thinking, and technology has definitely made a whole bunch of different ways that, that people can be really different. But do we see people and their ages as, oh, I'm not going to really get along with you? Maybe the main point I'm putting out is this, like, what do you allow you to use as a way of saying, I don't get along with you? and I won't do life with you. See, when I was in my previous church and I had to work with a guy that at that point in time, I honestly did not know if I should like or hate. I was forced to work with him. And at first it was something that I knew I would have to do even if it was reluctantly. But after a few years, in fact, it probably didn't take that long because I think God was just dealing with stuff in me. I started to see the gold. And today, this day, he's one of my closest friends. Every single conversation I have with him, I leave inspired. Every single time I have a conversation with him, I leave challenged about whether I love God and I love his kingdom enough. He's extravagant with his generosity towards me. And I've learned to appreciate and to see it. He sends me probably every second day funny videos on Instagram. He does all these kinds of things. Like literally, we used to hug uh, and he would bite me on the shoulder as his way of showing affection. It's weird. But I've learned to see that there are people in this world that are different, but they still show you love. And some of us are too uptight to receive it. Some of us think that we are so different and so prim and proper, or whatever it is that separates you. You don't talk like me. You don't sound like me. What if the body of Christ understood how to be different and united? How strong would we be as a church? And you know how unity is forged? One really, really practical thing is having meals together. And I'm not talking about Let's have this meal. Done. I'm literally talking about sitting in the same room across the table from someone and having a conversation with them, finding gold, 
finding amazing things about them. I've learned in my life that even the people that I don't like or don't feel chemistry with, if I sit with them long enough, I will find gold in every single person. And the more we separate ourselves into different rooms, the less opportunity we have to find that gold. I think we are meant to be so different that we rub each other up in a way that makes us uncomfortable, but in a way that sharpens us. Can I put forward a challenge for us this year? That you at least once a month have people over to have a meal with you. If your house is not big enough, not nice enough, I don't know what excuses you have. We live two minutes away from amazing food and restaurants. Go to flipping McDonald's if that's what you prefer and get some people along. Once a month, church, can we commit once a month to saying, I am going to have a meal with someone. And you know what? You want to take it up a notch, have a meal with someone that you don't really like, <laughs> that you don't get along. If you get an invitation, don't ask the person, am I one of those that you don't like? All right? But can you at least once a month invite someone to do life with Seriously, do brunch, do breakfast, do a barbecue, go to a park. But if we start to do life together more, I wonder whether we start to see the genius of God in how He is crafting and putting His body together. I used to think that I could have been in the wrong place because my old youth pastor was just so different from me. I didn't know if I would get a, get, work with him. It ended up being that we were so different that we worked perfectly together. There's some people that you need to start to work with because they don't think like you, because they don't work like you, in order that we can grow up and be mature in the faith. And so this morning, if I can get the band back up, I'd like us to be really practical this morning. And this is not just about a two-minute by-yourself kind of a thing, but it's about actually sitting down with people, praying for one another as we enter a new year. You know, as we were worshipping, this phrase got into my heart. And this phrase was this, your extravagance shows your heart, show where your heart is. What I am extravagant in shows what I value. Am I extravagant with my words to the other people in this room? Am I extravagant in my worship? Am I extravagant in the way that I love God and love His people? Or have I reserved my extravagance for myself? You know, that was a challenge for me this morning as I was listening to the words of the songs that we were singing. I was wondering, I think God put this check on my heart. Am I extravagant towards God and to His people? The issue with that church in Corinth is that they were extravagant to only the people that it suited and not to those 
that would be a difficulty. So as we consider what God is saying to us today, can I ask us to think about radical hospitality, setting a table not just for those that deserve it, but for every person who is part of the body of Christ. I wonder whether God's preparing us this year to have people that really don't look like us to come into this room. I wonder if I'm prepared to open my heart to people that I don't necessarily feel like trusting. See, the thing about extravagance, it's easy when we trust the person, isn't it? We worship God extravagantly when we have a revelation of how much He loves us. We, we can put out our hands, we can sing at the top of our lungs when we understand that Jesus has died and He has already given to us amazing things. But God says that we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And then He goes on and says that the second commandment is that you love one another the way that I have loved you. Jesus loved those who were unlovable. Jesus loved those who had nothing to give to Him. Jesus was extravagant with those who had nothing to offer Him. And so am I going to be the same? Am I going to be extravagant with what I do have with the people around me? Not just to God. You know, church, we are a generous church. Last year, we hit our targets and it was amazing. And we, and we are stepping into this place which requires us to have financial faith and all of that. And I feel like our church is doing really well at that. But can I bring this challenge in 2024 that is not just about how I treat God, but how I treat other people? Because Jesus is saying, man, this supper is meant to be about unity. This supper is meant to be about the relationships that are forged within my body. In this country, we don't often have people, and maybe in our congregation, we don't have people who are literally starving. But there are people that are starving in their hearts. There are people that are starving in their souls. There are people that are isolated and there are some people who, have, who are in that place because of their choosing or because of circumstances that have led them to mistrust, distrust people and maybe even distrust the church. The only way to break that kind of thing is for someone else to be extravagant, to open up their hearts and open up their homes. God wants us to be His body and to represent him well. So what I'm gonna do is I like, get into groups of three or four and um, send someone up to grab a little bit of bread to have together and then start to pray for one another. And as you come up as well, grab cups for those in your groups. So get together, literally stand up, get into a group, find yourself a group. Don't let anyone be standing alone. Don't let anyone be doing this alone. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.